Index investing or passive investing has grown more popular with investors. Even Warren Buffett has the benefits of owning an entire index like the S&P 500 over the long term. An example of an index tracking ETF is BMO's S&P 500 Index ETF. It's the largest ETF in Canada that tracks this well-recognized and popular index. It provides exposure to the returns of the market cap weighted S&P 500 Index at a low cost the management fee of just 0.08%. This broad market ETF makes for an efficient building block in a portfolio, saving you time and effort while mitigating single stock risk. If you're looking for exposure to the largest and most liquid public companies in the United States, this ETF delivers an easy-to-use solution and instant diversification. Commissions and management fees and expenses all may be associated with investments in exchange-traded funds. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 111. As always, join me the three amigos once again. Keith Dicker, Ice Cap Asset Management with the uh, San Fran jersey. And Rich Diaz, welcome back to the show, buddy. We missed I'm you back. last week. I missed you guys too, man. That was 109 weeks that we've spoken every yeah every week in a row for an, at least an hour, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, I really missed it, and I'm sorry to you guys, and I'm sorry to um, to our our tour listeners, our fans. Uh, especially sorry to my mom because I didn't tell her that I wasn't going to be on the pod. She was pissed off about that. <laughs> no offense to you guys, but yeah, I was in New York City on business. Um, I had a bunch of client meetings on Wednesday, and that got rolled over into Thursday. Uh, New York City is amazing. Uh, I've never been there before, believe it or not. What? And yeah, never been there before. Finance bros, never been to New York. Uh, finance. You've never weird. been to New York before? I had never, finance bro, had never been to New York, which was quite embarrassing. Uh, it was awesome. Yeah, I had loads of client meetings. Uh, some of them went better than others. I got absolutely killed in one um, by a guy. You know, that's the thing on the sell side where, um, you know, you have your clients, they're chasing after your view and they, they give you lots of pressure and they push back on everything you say. And of course, and everything you say is consensus, et cetera, et cetera. So that was did, a really did good you tell experience. about the Looney Hour? I did not tell him about the Looney Hour, I'm afraid. Well, that's but, your first mistake. So you're doing the, the typical, uh, you know, New York, Wall Street kind yeah, of stuff. And how were right. the hookers and blow afterwards? I, we did not have time for that, sadly. It was very much all business. But I'll tell you one thing, Keith, you'll love this. This is a family show. This, this is a family it's show. It's a classic Wall Street experience. But wait, let me tell you the story. So what is absolutely a stereotype that is true is the vest, the Patagonia vests in midtown they're everywhere every like person between every male or and, well a bunch of females too but everyone's just walking around in like loafers and a patagonia vest with the collared shirt i may not ever wear one again but so there you go keith be so for yourself you, might, bud. you may have figured this out if you're in new york down in like the wall street area or wherever the meetings are and you're wearing a tie everyone knows your cell side yeah i was wearing a tie yeah, you're immediately you just jump out if you're wearing the uh, the vest or something. You know, like yeah. You, hey, so we to... um for our listeners this week, a uh, couple things here before we get into the episode. Number one, of course, this is the final week to get Looney Hour tickets. 
uh, to the live event in Toronto on November 30th, next Thursday. Uh, so we've got about 20 tickets left. So uh, if you're listening to this episode and you've kind of been mulling it over, you might want to get over to the Eventbrite page ASAP uh, before they we sell the rest of the last 20 there. Um, this week's episode, we have a very, very special guest. Uh, his name is Dr. Chris Kiefer. Uh, he is the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Uh, so if you've been following along with any of Rich's rants about uh, the ESG transition and and uh, all this, um, I think we can all agree that it can't be done without nuclear. So we figured why not get a nuclear uh, specialists on the show to kind of discuss the ins and outs of that of that world. But after the episode, after the interview with uh, Dr. Kiefer, there we are going to touch base on the federal budget. I know everybody wants to you know get our commentary on on the updated federal budget. You know Airbnb regulations that came out with all these housing changes, mortgage changes. We got CPI in Canada. Uh, and then, of course, some commentary on on financial markets. So we do have a bunch to dive into after this episode. But uh, why don't we jump over to the interview with Dr. Chris Kiefer right now? Dr. Kiefer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're uh, really excited, particularly Rich. Um, <laughs> but yeah, why don't you why don't you just introduce yourself for those that are maybe unaware? Uh, obviously, we've followed a lot of your work on Twitter, but. Um, for those that haven't heard of you before, maybe just give us a quick little uh, synopsis. Yeah, sure. It's it's a bit of a strange story, to be honest. Um, I'm an emergency doctor by day, um, often by night as well. Um, and I developed this uh, passion and interest in nuclear energy after my son was born, thinking of some of the big picture issues like climate change and uh, casting around looking for solutions, being solutions oriented. Learned that I lived in nuclear powered Ontario where we phased out coal uh, using nuclear and had essentially the uh, holy grail of a decarbonized grid, which is you know the basis of this kind of electrify everything agenda um, that's necessary to some degree for climate change. So um, that led me uh, towards starting a podcast. It's a great way to you know educate yourself and have uh, have the opportunity to get in touch with experts and say, hey, we each have me for an hour. So I'm about 215 episodes into uh, the Decouple podcast um, and uh, founded a uh, grassroots nonprofit named Canadians for Nuclear Energy, which is made up of actually a number of doctors, but uh, engineers, scientists, uh, tradespeople, labor folks um, who believe that nuclear is really the cornerstone of a clean energy transition. So that's as a bit of background, I'll try and keep it brief. That's amazing. No, that's great. That's exactly sort of why I'm really into it. I think it is basically the only answer, but I, no one, everybody knows my views on that. I'm interested in sort of um, like, I mean, there's, I have a bunch of questions. So Steve, you're going to have to like muzzle me at some point. <laughs> I guess the first thing right off the bat, I think just, let's just get, get with, what do you think is like the biggest sort of challenge that you got you face or that the nuclear energy sort of lobby or businesses face in Canada and 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 how do you see that sort of changing or playing out over the next few years I mean is there some good news is there some bad news and and yeah what, you what know, would like, you do if you were the king of Canada <laughs> you know what honestly I started this uh nonprofit with a number of uh of other activists I guess going on about three and a half years ago and the landscape was so different at that point I mean, we started out, again, super grassroots, just some folding tables illegally put up in Nathan Phillips Square in, in uh, Toronto with some really brutally, you know, graphic design, uh, aesthetic uh, brochures we were talking to, you know, the usual suspects in downtown Toronto, not the most influential people. And over the course of three years, 
Um, we've really blown up. Um, I met the prime minister, met a number of cabinet ministers. I go to Ottawa regularly. Um, we've published a number of uh, important reports, uh, one on safe Pickering, which is one of the big nuclear stations in Ontario that was threatened with being closed. Uh, another called the case for can do. So the landscape has dramatically changed. And in a way, it's it's bizarre, I mean, to sort of get our wish list. So I mean, in terms of what's happening, um, well, just in the fall economic statement a couple of days ago, uh, nuclear was included in the green bond. Um, that was one of our big campaigns. Um, Stephen Gilbo, who's a former Greenpeacer and still our Minister of Environment and Climate Change, uh, you know, a principled, dedicated, consistent anti-nuclear activist uh, running that department. And, and in the initial green bond framework, um, nuclear was listed alongside the sin stocks of tobacco, so is, smoking, gambling. Is, uh, so that was a big fight for us. Is he, uh, uh, is Gil, is Gil, so yeah, I, I wasn't overly aware of this, but is Gilbo very anti-nuclear? And if so, if that is his view, why, like, have you asked him like what, what his stance is on that? I did uh, chat with him actually at uh, the big climate conference uh, COP. Uh, that was COP 26 in Glasgow. I managed actually an ambush interview with him. He was giving a talk at the World Wildlife Pavilion called Powering Past Coal um, and completely glossing over the fact that, you know, really one of the only successful coal phase outs in the world happened in Canada and it was powered by Canadian nuclear technology. Uh, the Ontario grid was 25% uh, coal. You know, we had 54 smog days a year in the big smoke here over in Toronto um, and nuclear reactivations of a number of our Canada nuclear stations provided 90% of the energy required to, to get rid of that coal. So I confronted him uh, on the way out of, uh, of that session at COP and said, hey, again, given, given you know, your longstanding commitments, um, you know, your, your consistency opposing nuclear, like how, how does that fly with the emerging scientific consensus and even that of the IPCC in which you know, all four of the pathways that see us staying under 1.5 degrees C um, model an increase in nuclear of between 150 and 500%. Like, will your anti-nuclear priors cloud your judgment? And it went a little bit viral. It led to a lot of media coverage. And it was really the first time, you know, that we saw media coverage of nuclear in this light, usually kind of like the climate debate in the early 2000s, you'd have a climate scientist and you have a climate skeptic and the media slowly has moved towards not necessarily feeling there's a need to have balance from people that are a little wing nutty. Um, and the typical thing with the media is to go and speak to, you know, an environmental expert uh, in Greenpeace on nuclear and and frankly, they're activists. They're, they're not folks who have a strong background or who have a balanced uh, appraisal of what's going on in nuclear. So anyway, there's a big change there. I'm, I'm taking a long time to answer your question. Gilbo is still in office, uh, but in my opinion, he's been told, listen, if you want to keep your cabinet position, you got to change your mind because the government's come around on this. So we had, um, you know, the Liberal Party federally. I think what I the way I characterize it is it was split between you know, the World Wildlife Organization essentially runs the prime minister's office. You know, three of the five key staffers are former World Wildlife Fund uh, folks, right? Uh, very anti-nuclear. Gilbo, very anti-nuclear. Do you mean the, the, the pandas are running? The pandas <laughs> running the prime minister's office. Right? Not surprised. Um, Not so, surprised. so that's that's one side of the Liberal Party. And then you have Vote Rich Ontario. You're not going to form government in this country. You don't win Ontario and Quebec. And Vote Rich Ontario is full of nuclear, right? We have 76,000 people working in the sector. We have hundreds of supply chain companies. It's a massive economic stimulus here in a sort of precision manufacturing province. Um, and those folks go out and vote. Um, and so the 
Ontario Liberal MPs are going, hey, you know, why are you why are you slagging nuclear here? Why are you saying that, that nuclear workers are essentially equivalent of, you know, folks, you know, tra it, trading in like endangered species or whatever else was in sort of the sin stock category? Um, so that was sort of the um, kind of wedge that I was able in my advocacy to sort of drive into that party and particularly with a sort of pivot of conservative politics towards populism and towards courting you know, the private sector skilled trades unions, for instance, I think the liberals are sort of feeling that need to sort of pivot back more towards, uh, well, frankly, in their own electoral interest towards not losing that contingent to, you know, the conservatives as, you know, happened here in Ontario with Doug Ford being backed by a number of skilled trades unions. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt the show. Just wanted to mention that the Lumiars put out a survey. We're trying to survey our audience. We get a better understanding who's listening to the show. If we have brought any value to you over the last month, two months, two years that we've been doing this podcast, you can take 30 to 45 seconds out of your day and fill in the Looney Hour survey. There's going to be a link in the show notes in the description on YouTube, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, etc. We're going to ask you, again, you know, your age, where you live, how many podcasts this new week. This helps us understand not only who you are, but also helps our advertisers know to make sure it's the right fit. So to be honest, you ultimately we're asking for a favor. We rarely ask our audience for things, but if you don't mind taking 30 to 45 seconds out of your day to fill in the Looney Hour survey, again, in the show notes below, we greatly, greatly appreciate it. Rich, go, go. hold on. I got, I, and I appreciate the answer here. I'm just kind of curious to get to the bottom of why Gilbo would be against nuclear. And, and, and the reason why I'm asking that, not so much for his view, but like, I would imagine like the reason why he's against it is probably why there's other skeptics that are maybe yeah. like not, because you look at all the, the benefits of nuclear and you're like, well, how come there's not, I wasn't, how come everybody's not for nuclear? Like, why are we shutting down, you know, nuclear power plants in, in parts of Europe, for example? Like, there's got to be a reason. And I'm kind of just curious what that other side, that that view is. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a bunch of reasons. I would say fundamentally, though, like like so so many of our opinions, they're not based in, you know, a detailed review of the facts. It's How dare you? A, <laughs> it's based on a feeling. It's based on being a part of a tribe. And with energy, it's so aesthetic, right? You know, that idea of having a few solar panels on your house and having the EV in the driveway um, and sort of doing your part and not having big centralized infrastructure appeals to a certain romantic part of the of the spectrum right and I mean I've grown to really appreciate the entirety of the political spectrum I think a healthy society needs balance you need libertarians you need you know lefties you need everything um, in balance to have a healthy you know politics and a healthy society. So, I mean, I don't begrudge people with that vision, but it's not realistic, right? And again, if you look on an evidence base, um, there's very few large economies that have decarbonized our electricity grid, which again, is only the first step. Um, and what's the commonality between them? You know, again, we're talking grids with over kind of five to 8 million. Either they've got all the hydro in the world, like Quebec or Manitoba, BC, internationally, Norway, I think Paraguay, et cetera, or they've got a big chunk of nuclear. France has the most, 75% of their grid, but Sweden's another one. Switzerland's pretty low carbon, Belgium, and here in Ontario. Um, again, essentially decarbonized grid using hydro uh, and and, uh, and nuclear. Um, so you have, you have evidence of what works, um, and then you have this kind of aesthetic commitments. Obviously, this also goes back to fear of the bomb. Nuclear is a dual-use technology. It's a kind of sword and plowshare um, situation. And, and those sort of deep-seated fears and the... I guess misapplication of those fears between two very different expressions of the technology um, 
you know, lie at the basis of this. My dad did duck and cover drills during the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, he was quite anti-nuclear until I was able to lay the facts out in front of him. Um, and, uh, you know, he came around as well. Um, you know, my my sort of political aesthetic backgrounds, you know, pretty kind of lefty. Even I was a bit of a hippie when I was younger. Um, I was never an anti-nuclear activist, but again, I think, you know, going to medical school, getting a background a little bit in, you know, empiricism and in learning how to assess the literature out there to see if it's any good, critical appraisal skills, that that's kind of ultimately what what turned me on this issue. I want to jump in for a quick question as well. I know Rich is just dying to come back for his questions. Um, but but Chris, talk a little bit about when was the last time a nuclear power plant was built in the West? Mm-hmm. And then sort of overlay on top of that, um, you know, it, it's it's my view, you know, it is what it is. But, you know, most of the West has gone left-leaning from a political perspective over, over the last decade. And mm-hmm. I know politics works like a pendulum, so we're likely going to be swinging back in the other direction now. Mm-hmm. And because of all this, uh, I guess, heightened interest and focus on, you know, trying to create a cleaner energy source, is now the time where we maybe we will see any new plants, other expanded or new ones? But answer the first question, and then sure. jump over to that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the West has been struggling, um, not just with nuclear, but with all major infrastructure projects, be it, you know, Site C out in uh, BC or Muskrat Falls and hydro, um, you know, building bridges, building tunnels, um, you know, you name it, building airports. Uh, it's a crapshoot now. Um, we've lost a lot of our capacity. We've deindustrialized in many ways. We've, uh, you know, offshored, um, and moved a lot of things to China, et cetera. And yeah, we're having our asses handed to us by, you know, the Chinese. It used to be the Japanese and, and the Koreans are very good at nuclear. Um, and frankly, we used to be very, very good at nuclear. Um, our stations, you know, we brought a large candy reactor. We commissioned one every single year for 22 years. So 22 large reactors built in 22 years. You might hear, well, nuclear plant takes forever to build. It's true. The average is six to eight years to, uh, you know, from pouring that base mat to hooking up to the grid. That sounds like a really long time, you know, for the climate alarmists, that doesn't seem fast enough, but we're talking about building in fleet mode here, right? And in that setting, you can bring on a lot of power quickly. The UAE, for instance, you know, whether that's in the West, they just joined the BRIC, so, you know, who knows? Um, but certainly, you know, not not a Chinese or, or a Russian example. Um, you know, they've decarbonized 25% of the electricity grid with a 15-year program where they had basically no one in nuclear 15 years ago. And they built four large Korean reactors, about 5,600 megawatts. Um, they've got that done now. Um, it's an incredible accomplishment. So, so nuclear can can move quickly. Um, second part of your question, can you remind me again what that was? Um, so, the last sorry, last builds again um, would be Okolotu in Finland, um, a large European pressurized reactor, and then of course Vogel, which is probably the most expensive building ever built on the face of the earth. Um, Where is that? Uh, that's down in Georgia, in the USA. Right. And that's that's the example. And, you know, the anti-nuclear activists have moved away from more of the more outlandish sort of Simpsons based critiques of nuclear because they know that the population is getting better educated and that sort of fear, uncertainty, doubt stuff doesn't work as well anymore. And they're pointing towards, you know, schedule and economics. And they have a point there in terms of uh, the dysfunction uh, in the West. Um, And so the the U.S., the supply chain was completely atrophied. Basically, the only people that had ever been on a nuclear construction site, I'm exaggerating a little bit, you know, were in wheelchairs and old folks homes. Um, and so you were getting you're rebooting for a very, very complex construction project um, with an atrophied supply chain and workforce. 
Um, in in just just as a sort of uh, pushback and in, in terms of what gives me hope in Canada, um, you know, we are refurbishing, which means essentially renewing our Canada reactors to an as new condition. They've been running for 30, 40 years. We can give them another 34 years of life with this major project. It's, you know, three billion, four billion dollar nuclear mega project. We're completing those, uh, you know, six months ahead of schedule, the last unit and under budget. So. You know, we are bucking that trend here in Ontario. We've developed an enormous amount of competence. We've got some great institutions here. And when you have that, when you have what I call the nuclear secret sauce, you can kick butt on these things and you can stamp them out as we did uh, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Creating visual content is an essential part of what I do, but the creative process hasn't always been easy. That is, until we discovered Canva. Illuminar uses Canva to create social media images and marketing materials for our live events. Designing custom artwork using Canva is so easy, even the boomer can do it. Canva for Teams is a design platform that makes it easy for anyone to create stunning content in any format, from social media posts to videos, presentations, and websites. Ever since I found Canva for Teams, it's been easy to collaborate and design with the team, which makes the whole process so much more creative and fun. We personally love using Canva templates. Canva has templates designed specifically for all social media platforms, which saves us a ton of time and money. Design and collaborate with Canva for Teams. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you go to canva.me slash loonyhour. That's canva.me slash loonyhour for a free 45-day extended trial. Canva.me slash So we're back with Dr. Keeper talking about nuclear power. And uh, thank you again for joining us. Uh, my question is just sort of a bit more sort of, um, um, you know, meat and potatoes. Can you sort of um, address sort of some of the concerns that you see with respect to nuclear waste or um, meltdowns? A little, a few of the scary things that, you know, people um use as an excuse to not build and sort of why those fears specifically are misplaced because we talked a little about policy we talked a little about about an energy but i think there's some people just want to know like what's the yeah. what is the what's to worry about if if you don't mind yeah no for sure i mean they're they're big questions it's a challenge to answer answer them succinctly because you've got to push back against um a I lot of them, right but just on the waste issue um you know i like to concede that nuclear waste is exceptionally dangerous Right. Fresh out of the reactor without shielding, stand in front of waste for a matter of seconds. You've got a lethal dose. You're kaputz. Right. But somehow in the history of civilian nuclear power, there's not been a single death from handling nuclear waste. Like, how exactly is that? And it's because we make dangerous things safe. And if you think about an analogy here, think about the aviation industry. How insane is it that we pack two, three hundred people, men, women, and children, right, onto these real thin skin pressurized tubes, these airplanes, we put them up at 30,000 feet where there's not enough oxygen. Um, sometimes we fly over huge oceans, nowhere to land. There's, you know, thousands of mission critical moving parts that need to be maintained perfectly. You need air traffic control, all of these variables that make flying incredibly dangerous. And yet we've found a way, you know, through human ingenuity to make it 17 times safer than driving. Managing nuclear waste, you got to take the fuel out of the reactor, you do that underwater, you move it into a spent fuel pool underwater, you wait five years, 10 years, and you put it into a, a steel and, and concrete line bin. Um, it's called a dry storage cask. Um, and you kind of get a sense that that sounds like a lot easier of a process than something like aviation. Um, of course, there's even better track record of safety with waste, because every year there's a few hundred people that die in aviation accidents. Um, more about the waste. People say it's forever waste, right? After 400 years, you could hold one of our fuel bundles in your hands without even wearing gloves on. So that's the thing about nuclear waste is it decays. It becomes less toxic with time. There are some long-lived isotopes, 
but they're blocked by the skin of your hand or a sheet of aluminum foil. Um, so those are only a concern if you were to crush up, again, this isn't like a glowing liquid waste, it's ceramic fuel pellets, right? You'd have to crush it up and do lines of it or, or eat it. And there's just not really any mechanism by which human beings would do that. Um, so, you know, I've gone and visited. <laughs> well, waste. let's never, you know, underestimate the uh, human ingenuity. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Just to wrap up on the waste. Yeah, I mean, I've been to the, uh, the waste management facilities, right? And you have these, they're called dry casks. They're pretty huge. Huge, like maybe 14 foot tall, tall, and they're you know eight foot, uh, uh, you know, on the sides in terms of big rectangles. And you think about how much electricity that waste um, accounted for. And you're talking about powering cities for for years. I mean, Bruce Power, for instance, that's 30 percent of the province is electricity, and their waste fits inside a Costco-sized mall. Is that a massive, unmanageable problem? Like particularly compared to the alternatives. I mean, you can't see CO2, but it's an enormous mass, the amount of coal ash that goes out there. Um, the other waste streams that are gaseous or liquid, those are hard sort of streams of waste to manage. Um, you know, a nuclear fuel pellet, or, or let's just say one can-do fuel bundle, it looks like a log of wood, essentially, that's the dimensions, uh, can power 100 homes for a year, right? And so uranium is just so energy dense that the waste is so energy dense and we don't produce a lot of it. So the entire um, amount of nuclear waste that we've generated in Canada uh, in terms of spent fuel would fit on one hockey rink stacked 32 feet or one telephone pole high, just to give you a sense of, you know, visualizing it. Yeah. So in my mind, like, does it require care? Does it require solid engineering? Yeah. Nothing as complicated as the aviation industry. Um, is it manageable? Absolutely. Um, okay. And I, I think that's a really silly reason not to pursue again a demonstrated decarbonization tool that it we sounds, have. But, yeah, it sounds better, though, Rich, than uh, you know these these wind turbine blades stacking up in in landfills everywhere. Well, yeah, and then not only that is that they have they're they're shipped here using marine diesel, and if you know anything about diesel and marine diesel specifically, it's one of those tankers is like you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cars worth of emissions. So that I mean that's a conversation maybe for another day. My question, um, is it frustrate you that the other types of given, sorry, let me rewind, given your view on climate change, given your, your interest in decarbonizing, does it frustrate you how much press solar and wind get with respect to what they can deliver and when versus a proven technology and how it can deliver and when like i know you're a doctor you're not supposed to be emotional but you obviously care about this and i mean it makes drives me crazy so i'm just curious like how you feel about it yeah it's interesting i mean in the bizarre phenomenon again of the nuclear advocacy community we are sort of divided in the all of the above folks and i'll say the all of the best folks and so for me again there's so many aesthetic concerns right or just an aesthetic vision of energy. And it, 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 you know, feels good that we're harnessing natural flows of energy and the sun is, you know, it's not always going to be there, but billions of years before it turns into a red dwarf star and consumes the planet, you know, it generates the winds we're feeding off of nature. We're in balance, you know, and people, I think I have a sense and a delusion that, you know, once a solar panel is built, it'll be there forever, you know, generously 30 year lifespan, a wind turbine 20 years. And they are so energy dilute that we need just an enormous amount in terms of trying to replace existing capacity. You really can't compare the services that a nuclear plant provides, which are not, you know, fossil fuels are absolutely incredible sources of energy. They're very I'm hard. Sorry, to... I'm sorry. What? I'm sorry. You cut out there. So can you repeat that? <laughs> yeah, fossil, I mean, we are a fossil fuel civilization. You know, look at everything around you. It's made out of oil or it's enabled by fossil 
fossil fuels in terms of, you know, just the, every, every bit of, you know, your computer, the, the framed wall behind you, that's an energy conversion. And almost always it was done with fossil fuels. But, you know, nuclear can actually replace some of those fossil fuel services with, you know, reliable, dispatchable electrical generation that can provide, you know, district heating, which, you know, would be very useful for Canada or, or low grade process heating. It can do propulsion of large boats, as we see with the Navy, et cetera. That's not all fossil fuel services, but it's a it's a good number. Whereas wind and solar, you know, they're they're stochastic, they're unreliable. It doesn't matter how many wind turbines you build, how much you overbuild a fleet. Um, you know, in Ontario during our peak demand, wind was at six point five percent of of its capacity for two weeks. Right? It it shits the bed. It it goes away. And so yeah, I mean, part of what motivates me, and you hear the passion in my voice, um, is that. You know, we're not setting out concrete goals. Okay, what do we want? We want to have the most effective decarbonization tools. We want to provide amazing jobs and stimulate the Canadian economy, right? Um, we want to do this on the smallest land footprint possible. We want to make sure that we can maintain our grid and power our hospitals and our industry reliably, right? What, which of our, you know, low carbon energy technologies do that? There's very few. Um, you know, hydro is great, but we've used up all the great hydroelectric spots. Geothermal, it's, it's ge geographically constrained. So that really leaves us with nuclear and we should be proud. I mean, 15% of this country is, you know, nuclear powered. It's second only to hydro. And as I said, Ontario um, has some hydro, but, you know, our economy is much larger than what Niagara Falls can do, basically. Um, and so, you know, we went coal, but then we use nuclear to get rid of that coal. And that's a good model for other hydro constrained provinces like, say, Nova Scotia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, et cetera. So can I just ask one more question, boys, and I'll pass it back to you guys. It's like, so looking ahead, what do you what do you see are your biggest sort of challenges? And I know we're sort of winding down. we got to we got to widen out this um, interview. And thank you very much again for for joining us. But I just want to say, like, what do, you, what do you think is like the biggest sort of what do you think you, you what are the biggest challenges maybe over the next like two or three years? And then maybe what are the things that you like, what can like regular people do? I mean, should we write to our MPs and say uh, enough with the, the solar panels, let's get serious. Or, I mean, or do we just, I guess I don't want to tell people how to vote or whatever it is, but you know what I mean? Like what can regular people do to sort of um, if they su support your sort of vision for decarbonization and, and that kind of thing. Well, listen, I mean, we're open to donations. Go Sorry, you can repeat that. www.c4ne.ca. We are, you know, funded in, in this manner. So we do appreciate that. And and again, not to toot our horn too much. There's been other factors, but I mean, this has been a good news story. We mentioned the green bond, uh, nuclear. We fought to have it in the investment tax credit. It's there. The Canadian Infrastructure Bank has done a billion dollar loan for, you know, the West's first small modular reactors being built at Darlington. Um, you know, Pickering looks like it will be refurbished. Um, that's, you know, 15% um, of Ontario's baseload electricity, um, which we've, you know, we led a campaign to save. There's plans to build another eight reactors, new reactors in Ontario. Um, we signed a, a deal with our export development bank with Romania for a sovereign debt back deal. Um, all the money lent to Romania is going to be spent in Ontario because they're building a couple new Canada reactors. I mean, there's good news story after good news story after good news story. And so it's been a good year for you. <laughs> I mean, one, one of our slogans is, you know, the best climate solutions belong in every party. Um, you know, the conservatives certainly vocally back nuclear. The liberals have done, you know, not to use the pun too much, but a U-turn um, on nuclear. Um, and the NDP is feeling the heat because, um, you know, just this this week, for instance, the Ontario Feder Federation of Labor um, unanimously backed a pro-nuclear resolution. There's an emerging consciousness here that when 
wind and solar, A, don't provide jobs to Canada because the supply chain is basically all in China. And the install jobs are low skilled. They're hard to unionize. Um, they're what I call the sort of carny version of, of clean energy jobs. Sorry, Mark Carney or? No, or... like carnival. Like, you know, people going town to town to do a carny job, right? Okay. Um, whereas, again, Rich, nuclear Rich provides... wasn't exposed to that when he was young. All right. All right. Yeah. So, you know, nuclear provides these intergenerational, I mean, guys in there like can do fed my family for, for three generations. And these are, you know, six figure income jobs going to folks um, who, you know, maybe have a high school or college degree and then get trained up on the job into, you know, incredibly high levels of competence, you know, not, not to mention the, you know, high, tra highly trained engineers and PhDs and everything else, but there's a job for everyone in nuclear and they're good jobs. And, you know, you go to a nuclear community and there's a reason why people living next to a nuclear plant are the most adamantly pro-nuclear people you'll find. An incredible tax space. They have incredible facilities, sports facilities, et cetera, and awesome jobs. Um, so I think I'm sort of veering off from your question there, but, you know, lots and lots of good news. What are the challenges? I mean, this is interesting. And, you know, I, I think, you know, you try not to get political, but politics are important. As I said, the federal conservatives, you know, vocally pro-nuclear, but I'm actually concerned that they're sort of biased towards um, small government, no real role for government, um, maybe some free market fundamentalism actually really threatens the Canadian nuclear sector. You know, cutting regulation and trying to create a business friendly environment, I think, works well and plays well in the West where it's mostly a natural resources game. When we're talking about central Canada, again, there's natural resources here, but a lot of it is in manufacturing and our manufacturing sector is competing internationally. And there is no free market there. I mean, every country is trying to stimulate their, their manufacturing sector. I mean, think of aviation, like the U.S. goes to bat for Boeing or EU countries go to bat for Airbus. And, you know, we've gone to bat for Bombardier. You need a different sort of industrial policy, um, which does require some government intervention. And nuclear does need that. Um, my argument to them would be that this is a strategic sector. You know, you don't privatize your military. Um, and, you know, there's lots of private companies involved in the nuclear supply chain, but it is an area which requires some government oversight and, and uh, obviously government oversight, but also involvement, um, particularly if we want to preserve our incredible nuclear legacy as, you know, a reactor designing country. There's yeah, only so three major types of reactors in use around the world. Uh, boiling water reactors, pressurized water reactors, and the can-do. Um, so we have an incredible legacy. It's one of Canada's top 10 engineering achievements. It's in uh, in, in jeopardy right now, um, you know, partially because of, of a lack of, of, you know, national nuclear or just industrial policy. So that's, um, you know, while I'm enthused by uh, the Conservatives, uh, you know, vocal support for nuclear, um, there's work to be done there in terms of, I think, educating them on, you know, what's unique and different about nuclear compared to, say, Canadian oil and gas. Thank you. That's, that's, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a good good place to wrap it up. Keith, I don't know, Rich, do you guys have any final questions here? I just have a, it's not a question. It's just, I think, in my mind, it's an obvious fact. And, uh, you know, the, the challenge for nuclear, it's not that, you know, everything that you did mention to us, that it's, you know, all the positives and there's always negative sort of thing as well. It is the fact that, you know, the climate zealots out there have chosen not to support that avenue. Instead, they've gone another direction. So we, we can jump up and down all we want about, you know, maybe one, one solution is better than another. But at, until that world turns and they say, yeah, you know what, we don't need windmills. Let's put it all towards nuclear. Um, it's it's going to be a struggle. I really you know, even though there are small victories taking place, in in my mind, there is a much larger group that it, it's not just a Canadian decision that's being made. 
there's some pretty big global factors taking place here. And they've decided not to back this horse. And maybe that will change. Maybe that will change when this pendulum swings a little bit. But uh, I, I, just, I just love the conversation today. I think a lot of our listeners are going to say, wow, I didn't know that that was happening and existed. But uh, I, I loved uh, I was just thrilled to hear you today, Chris. That was great. Yeah, I can't help myself. Um, one one bit of pushback I'd give you is that I think, um, you know, I've chosen to largely ignore uh, the environmental NGOs. If you think about them as a population demographic, this is a tiny number of people. You know, they're well-funded, and I'll give them that. They're they're very capable, you know, in terms of our strategy. I, I kind of copy-paste a lot of what they do in terms of things like our House of Commons petitions. I was inspired by their tactics. We insert our own messaging, and we've been very successful. But, you know, in terms of who votes, like we pivoted very early to go, listen, there's 76,000 people working in the sector. They know it. They value it. They understand it. That's kind of like a voting block. Politicians will listen to that. Like we've got to think strategically, I think, um, when we're you know putting forward an issue that we care about. Um, and so, yeah, I think the there's a lot to celebrate. Things are moving in a great direction here. I, you know, I listed off probably 10 points there in terms of positive developments. You know, sometimes I think, hey, I can hang up my shingle now and get back to just doing medicine all the time. Um, but there's always more challenges. Nuclear, you know, the if I want to sort of steel man the opponents, it's hard. It takes your best, your best people. It takes highly competent institutions. Um, it's it's a pretty inspiring meeting the people that work in it, the professionalism they have. Um, and this is the thing, Ontario in particular, we've developed that expertise. We've developed those institutions. We're very well suited. You know, governments lining up on the federal, provincial level. Um, so I think I think we're at the beginning of something that's that's pretty exciting. Of course, the best time to do nuclear was 10 years ago. And, you know, the cost of capital was essentially I mean, interest rates went negative in the 2010s. They, they always stay low. We've been told repeatedly that Forever. interest rates never go up. <laughs> all but, my, my, but the next best time is now. Right. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. Last question. I know we have to go. Last question. Dr. Kiefer, do you speak German by any chance? Because there's a few people in uh, in Bavaria that I think would really benefit from your <laughs> activism. And um and yeah, so if you could, if you're bored of Canada or you think you've reached all your goals in Canada, I would suggest you pick up and head to Germany because they need the they need their to give their head a shake. So, I agree. We we actually have had an event with uh, <laughs> James Hansen in Berlin, uh, okay. and closure of their of their last six nuclear plants. So yeah, been there, done that, but more to do for sure. Okay, thank you again, uh, Dr. Kiefer. It's uh, it's amazing what you've been able to uh, accomplish. Uh, you know, like you said, just uh, you know, a few years at this, and um, and the podcast is it's the decouple podcast, correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, okay, pretty we'll... wonky, but uh, yeah, good deep dive on lots of energy topics, not just nuclear and a little bit of, you know, politics, environmental philosophy. So check that out. And if you want to support us, um, we do, again, we take no money from industry, um, which is part of what keeps us dynamic and with more exciting uh, messaging than, than comes out of an industry that's afraid of its shadow. Um, yeah, so if you go to c4ne.ca and find the donate button, we'd really appreciate that. We'll, uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But uh, yeah, appreciate your efforts. Keep fighting the good fight. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. My absolute pleasure, guys. Happy to come back anytime. Hey, guys. Sorry to interrupt the show. I just want to remind you the Lumi Hour is going to be live in Toronto on Thursday, November 30th, starting at 6 p.m. The doors are going to open. It's going to be a live podcast, drinks, appetizers, laughs, good times. It's going to be so much fun. If you've ever been to any of our live events, I'm sure a lot of you can attest to that. But to go check out our past live events on our YouTube channel there, you can check it out. Come meet hundreds of other Lumi Hour listeners. Come support the show. We'd love to see you there. There's going to be a link in the show notes below, whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening to it on Spotify or Apple, there's going to be a link in the description, which will take you directly to the Eventbrite page where you can purchase a ticket 
hope to see you there. Yeah, it was a good, uh, good interview there with Dr. Kiefer. I think very insightful um, for those that aren't really like, I don't think there's a lot of Canadians that are spending a whole bunch of their spare time studying the uh, energy grid here in Canada. So it yeah, was, was uh, you know, it's just amazing to hear this conversation. You know, my comment is that, you know, like you guys, you know, were quite serious when I, well, we were tinfoil hat sometimes, but um, I, believe and i know i think everyone else would agree as well that there's, there's some pretty big global groups that are driving the agendas for a lot of the west these days and they decide which direction we're going to go and includes media coverage and education and you name it the bug eating crowd yeah <laughs> it just seems really odd that nuclear is not even involved in the solution so um you know hopefully this this will change and that you know that could make things a lot better for us but uh, you know, Rich, thanks for putting that interview together. That that was a lot of uh, a lot of fun. I I'm, I'm, hope everyone appreciates it. Yeah, so I, I I agree. I mean, you're welcome to you. That was awesome. I mean, um, I agree with you. The the, the like willful kind of ignorance and the perpetuation of like silly myths, I think, are both dangerous. They're not helpful. And I think, I mean, with respect to the other renewables, I think maybe they're part of the solution and they can be for certain countries. I know Portugal's done really well with wind or what have you. But the fact that, for example, Germany is having a basically an industrial recession and now has to subsidize their uh, Mittelstadt, which is like the small companies in the southern part of Germany and western part of Germany to the tune of 28 billion dollars, sorry, billion euros, excuse me. Um, in order to um, lessen the impact of much, much higher energy costs as a direct result of them shutting down six nuclear power plants that, by the way, had another lifespan of 20 or 30 years. I mean, to me, that that kind of um, the sort of the hubris, the arrogance with respect to that, I think is just mind blowing. There is some positive signs, Keith, where um, we didn't talk about this, Dr. Kiefer, because he's more of a Canadian focused, um, you know, analyst and, and activist. But um, Sweden has basically made a U-turn on this. Um, they just um, sealed a deal. I think it was a cross-party sort of, um, uh, you know, like either deal or promise to basically recommit to nuclear energy. J uh, Japan is now after Fukushima, after sort of the fallout, pardon the pun, is now recommitting to um, nuclear energy. You know, we give the Chinese a lot of shit for building coal power plants. I think deservedly so. They're absolutely pot committed to building loads more nuclear power plants. Um, Korea just finished another one. So I think that, you know, despite these sort of global forces pushing us towards wind and solar, which I think are just bogus, I think the I think ultimately, I think hopefully, Keith, the market will win out. And it's just an unambiguously positive thing for people. Again, if you care about climate change, I think it's it's I think it's quite clear where we hope, need to go. Hope is an awesome strategy. <laughs> No, but what I'm hey. saying is you're seeing there's you're seeing the it's happening. It, I mean the headlines are clear. Speaking of hope, we had the uh federal budget in Canada <laughs> here. Uh you know, he, Rich, normally you and I are the funny ones, hey, and Steve I know. holds it back, but boy, that was the deadpan loony hour humorous quote of the yeah. year, Steve. Yeah, so yeah, well, yeah, that well, was outstanding. Uh so Freeland's budget will include an additional twenty. 20.8 billion over the next six years. Uh, again, obviously that assumes they stay in power uh, and they'll run. And so they'll hit a, they'll run a $40 billion deficit this year. And all of this assumes no recession. So Keith, you actually highlighted the, uh, the chart, um, which we'll put up here for 
their economic projections, which is like there, there's no recession in sight at all you know, over I the think next if like you look, 10 years. Yeah, I mean, we, we talk about this quite a bit. And so from an economic forecast perspective, it's beyond me. We live in a cyclical world. Our economy is cyclical and all that stuff. Yet a, a recession is never forecast. Like that will never happen. Like how dare you suggest that's going to happen? And because of that, every single policy forecast that come out of our governments, it doesn't matter if they're left or right or up or down. It's that the future always looks amazing. It's amazing. So this one here, though, uh, so the chart that I sent, I think we're going to share here. on. on as, as no, you had the long-term here. projection of federal debt, correct? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So showing, you know, debt to GDP. And some people say, well, let's look at the absolute value of debt. And I'm a big believer in that as well. Like, just stack up the chips, right? How high are they or how low are they and all that? And then the other view, of course, is, well, you know, if you have enough, it's like your house, right? How much house can you buy? It's dependent upon your income. So that's why, you know, with the country you'll always compare your debt to GDP. So debt is what you borrowed and GDP is really your income. You know, you're, you're coming in for the country. But there, the, the Canadian uh, forecast that just came out in the fall economic statement, uh, it's showing that debt to GDP will continue to decline over the, I think it's five years, eight years. I'm not looking at it right now. I, it basically just like, it almost falls to almost, zero. Yeah, right. a, a child a child drew that chart. By the way, <laughs> it goes There's a few from... crayons on it. I, I think, Rich, you're 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 right. Uh, yeah. So so let's it's... just yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that. How, how does that happen? So it means first of all, if economic growth stays flat, mean you know by default means the debt has to decline, and we know that ain't happening because there's deficits. You know, as far as we can see. Um, and then on top of that, interest rates have to come down because even if growth stays, sorry, even if just say the government manages to not borrow any more than what they're currently doing. So the outstanding debt will not increase just with higher rates with debt rollovers. It means the debt increases on its own, right? So to get debt coming down with the economy flat, it means like some kind of magical unicorn has to come riding in uh, and to do that. And then the other side of it is, you know, economic growth. It, it has to, you know, grow. And again, the way a cycle works, you know, when you have expansion, what happens next? It's slowing growth, then a recession. It, it just cleanses out the system. So it, it's beyond me how anyone looking at this forecast for debt to GDP uh, that, that just came out of the, and this is fall economic statement for the Canadians, yet it's going to play out. So therefore, by default, it means... Hey, if we do get a recession, the deficits are going to blow out even more, or they're going to have to raise taxes. And as the Minister of Finance, uh, she did not uh, deny that taxes would not increase if that's the case. So again, we're, we're going down this slippery road. And as bad as that economic statement looked yesterday, you know, the, the government put this incredibly positive spin on it. And we'll go into that, see, because the whole spin was about housing, housing, housing. And uh, cause that's on the top of everyone's mind right now. But I, and, and, and again, if you're, if you're into numbers, which I think everyone should be, it's going to be really difficult for us as a, an economy with, with our debt load and to come through there. I mean, like we, we can talk about the, 
Rich, you got some comments. Wait, wait. Just, just like really quickly, yeah. Steve. Let me, I'm, let me just jump in there, Keith, for one second. Just, the, just as a reminder, it's important people note that when they talk about this number of forty percent, forty-two percent, forty-three percent, that's that's federal government debt to GDP. We and but it's important to note there's other types of government. So our gross general government debt to GDP is a, over a hundred, and that's the that's the wrinkle that I think is constantly I. I mean, here's my tinfoil hat now for you. I think they purposefully ignore that because um, it sounds better. They can say it's the lowest in the G7, which is total bullshit. Basically, the point you have to incorporate the other parts of the government when you're thinking about debt to GDP. So when they when you look at America, debt to GDP, it's over 100. That's general government debt to GDP. They don't just use the federal portion of whatever. You know what I'm saying? So you have to just. Anyways, that's sorry that I needed to jump in there because that's an important. Well, yeah, it's, just... it's the it's the provinces ultimately. Like Keith, you flagged the you flagged provincial debt for you know since we started this show. Yeah, yeah. And I think Rich, you just made a really good point, Rich, because um, this debt to GDP is federal debt, and of course there's other obligations that the government owe, and they'll say, well, it's offset against assets and everything, but the GDP number it's it's the entire country, right? Right. That. Yeah, sorry. You so said it better than I did. Sorry. Yeah, That's so right. it's GDP coming from Alberta and Quebec and PEI and all these places. And so, you know, you, you would think if you want to be, you know, crystal clear on communicating what the true fiscal position is, uh, you have to include provincial debt as right. well. So you can effectively double that number. But no, you can. Uh, it's more than double. It's a hundred. It's a hundred. So it's, anyway, sorry, please continue. Yeah, sorry. yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for example, for what they're expecting for next year, I think the deficit uh, is now going to be, the forecast to be 46 and a half billion. And people tend to know their eyes gloss over. Steve doesn't because Steve's selling houses out there for billions. <laughs> so he knows, he knows that's a real number. But to give you an idea, so 46 billion just for interest on the debt, right? That's just interest. Think about it. This is what there's, this is what the feds are spending for uh, childcare, 25 billion. You're spending $22 billion on employment insurance. Our national defense, $26 billion. So again, the, the interest on our stacked debt, you know, the chips are getting stacked up higher and higher. Uh, this is going in the wrong direction. And, you know, people chat with me, you know, I always tell the story about we, we just finished a 40-year cycle with rates always going lower. And now they're going up, boys. Now they're going... Speaking of which has a voice store anyway, right? We need Tiff Macklem to help us out here. Come on, Tiff. Start cutting rates. We'll go, we'll get into that. But I mean, uh, a couple other interesting notes out of the federal budget there uh, on the housing front. So they earmarked like another $15 billion. I believe that's just like CMHC rental construction. Um, I think a lot of these projects are still not that economically viable. So we'll see how, how much of that, those funds actually get absorbed. But um the other two that they mentioned was they came up with like this like mortgage banking thing that they were like, oh, we're going to protect Canadians. But like all that stuff is already happening. So what they said is, oh, like, you know, if you are um, if you're facing financial hardship, the banks need to like allow you to work with their, you know, extend amortizations and and do all that. So the reality is, is banks have already been doing that. So they basically kind of like bundled up this like package to make it look like they were doing a whole bunch of stuff but it really is political theater and uh our, our buddy ron butler there kind of debunked a lot of that on the mortgage side uh, a guy that has a lot of uh close intel with with these large banks and 
free plug will be at our uh, event on the housing panel there on November 30th. So, uh, but they also announced the Airbnb thing, which I thought was kind of interesting. I'm kind of curious your guys' perspective because it's definitely well, can like you explain, very... Can you explain what it is first? Because I'm not sure I heard it. Yeah. About, heard so there's, it. there's a lot of, um, again, housing crisis. Um, you know, who do we blame? You know, it's never the government's fault. It's, you know... So, you know, I think the scapegoat and, you know, rightfully, I think they have impacted the housing market, right? It was the foreign buyers. Now the conversation I've just noticed has been turning like investors are the problem. This is why we have a housing problem in Canada. It's investors and in particular, Airbnb operators, they're the ones to blame. It has nothing to do with, you know, decades of low interest rates and excessive population growth, et cetera. It's now the investors. And so we saw like two weeks ago, the BC government came out and said, listen, um, we're enacting provincial regulations around Airbnb that municipalities are going to have to follow. And then we had the federal government come out again during this budget and saying, um, if you are not, you if you're operating an Airbnb, you are not allowed to deduct the expenses against the income, right? So if you think about a traditional property investor in Canada, um, when you have a rental property, you have revenue and then you have your expenses and you can typically, you can not typically, you can deduct all those expenses. You can, for example, you can deduct your mortgage interest cost, not your principal. You can deduct the mortgage interest. You can deduct the property taxes that you pay. You can deduct, uh, you know, maintenance and the property strata fees, et cetera. So obviously that helps offset some of the, you know, the revenue or profits and, and lowers your tax bill. So what they're saying is that, well, we want to make Airbnb less lucrative for investors. And so we saying you cannot deduct any of the expenses. So again, as an Airbnb operator, I think that's a huge dent to your profit and loss statement. So I'm kind of curious your guys' thoughts. I don't have a strong opinion on it because I think it's so politically divided that like you'll have two people in the spectrum that say, oh, Airbnb is the worst thing ever. It's creating this affordability problem and people are basically operating hotels and residential zoning. They should never be allowed to do that versus the other people that will say government is getting too much into the free market. This is a bit of a slippery slope into... Hey, you know, maybe we remove expenses on traditional investors in two or three years from now. So, so I have a question and, and a comment. The question is, how out of how many households, how many units of Airbnb are there? Like, is it a material number? And I guess maybe, well, that's something we can research at a different date. Unless you, know I, I think the numbers are just like it's hard to really get a number. Like people will say, I think the way they say there's 30,000 Airbnb. So Krista Freeland's own thing is she believes across the country, there's going to be 30,000 additional units freed up. Okay. Well, that's, that, that's my, come to my second point. That's yeah, one. That's Krista Freeland's view. So people will say, well, there's 30,000 Airbnbs in Ontario, but just because you have an Airbnb in Ontario doesn't mean that people are going to stop Airbnb and they're going to immediately open up that extra bedroom or that extra unit's going to end up on the rental market. There's people that well, just so don't. no, that's I disagree with you on that. So I think one of the, so the one of the things I also and this is probably good in a sense. One of the things I think is maybe not good for a housing stock. And you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but having an asset that's basically underutilized, right? Because if you can, I've made this point before, which is if you can 
make up your mortgage, if you can um, rent your apartment for 10 days a year, a month, excuse me, 10 days a month, and the rest of the, those other 20 days, they're empty, then doesn't that deduct net net from your overall housing stock? I mean, the Airbnb guy's happy, the person who purchases the ha happy, and in some ways, you should be able to do whatever you want with your asset. I get that point. But if we're trying to deal with a housing crisis, aren't these assets sort of underutilized from... I, I guess it just homes. depends on how much government control. Like, I, I mean, if you've got a spare bedroom in your house, if, you know, Keith's got a, whatever he's got, a five bedroom house, when he only uses three bedrooms, are you going to force him to rent out the other two? No, no, that's fair enough. But what I mean is like, you know, in downtown, the condos in, the, we know there's condos in Toronto that might be filled, you know, 30% of the year. And I can tell you in Vancouver, there's definitely like wealthy people that own $4 million pied de Right. Because okay. they're like, I come to Vancouver for three months of the year and this is a secondary property for me. And okay. now, like, again, now you're having to pay empty homes tax, speculation tax, because the government thinks that you're not using that property how they want you to use it. And so I get it. I I I do think we're starting to 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 lean in this direction that becomes a bit of this totalitarian, you know, state I mean, that is dictating on how everybody should be using their properties. And so again, I'm not saying there's like a right or wrong answer. I just find it very interesting that like the solution in Canada always just seems to be let the government control it, more taxes, let them regulate it. And and I I, I just don't and we haven't really solved well that's the that was thing. That was what I was going to say. So, I mean, you make a really good point. So I maybe have to reconsider my view on this. But ultimately, I think it's what Keith talks about all the time um, is that they're just dealing with a symptom of the issue. The issue is we do not have enough housing stock, full stop. And we just have way too many people coming in and not we're not building enough homes. And, you know, shifting the decks on the Titanic, as it were, is not going to work. We're just trying help. to redistribute the pie. Right. Yeah. So, so just again, and just to summarize again, if Krista Freeland, her math is correct, that she believes with this new <laughs> interview, <laughs> if she believes, so no, again, if she believes there's thirty thousand units that will be freed up out of the Airbnb pool because the the math no longer works and the government's telling them what to do, thirty thousand units. So we every year we're, we're on average we're completing about. 220,000 new housing completions per year in this country. So 220 plus you freed up the 30 for, you know, it's a one time 30, right? So, right. so 250,000 housing units for the year. When you're adding a million people, is it really you're, that low, Steve? Is it really only? Yeah. yeah. So we've averaged, we've actually averaged about 200,000 housing completions per year over the last like decade. That's unit, um, single. That's units. That's like apartments that's and condos and yeah, so Keith's mansion and all that shit. Yeah. So if you account like single family houses and then how many condo dwelling units and how many townhouses, so it's like again, we, we like I, I see what they're trying to do because it is a political win, right? Like there's there's a lot of people that are against Airbnb and and you know you can see all these other cities in North America that are coming out against it and putting in regulations. So like it's an easy political win, but I I, I think we're we are kind of taking our eyes off of the big picture here. Okay. Are you guys ready? Are you finished? Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. We're Steve finished. Is like 100% correct here. I mean, so first of all, you know, my, our view on this is irrelevant. Instead, you always yeah. take the view. This is where they're going. This is the road that they've gone down. Um, 
and I disagree with it. I think you guys know how I feel about it. But just to be clear, you know, people are making investments. They're using their own private capital. And it doesn't matter if it's real estate or they're opening a donut shop or an IT company. They've taken on the risk to invest in something. And now they're running it. And now for government to get increasingly more involved in their business. Again, some people say, well, no, you need more units and all that stuff. It, it's incredibly naive to believe there will be no secondary and third and fourth repercussions from this. So that we can't all, calculate today. I, absolutely. I mean, the, the quantitative side of it is, it just doesn't work. I mean, see, you just clearly explained you get a one-time boost of, I'd be surprised if it's going to be 30,000 units. I don't believe any numbers coming out of, coming out of the, fall economic statement, as we've already <laughs> said. Um, I think it's hopeless. So this, the, these policy responses, and if you go through the fall economic statement, the whole thing is, you know, it's housing, the housing crisis and rental crisis unit. And, you know, governments had to respond, you know, they have to respond to, to social crises. And, and this is clearly one. Uh, but as Rich, you mentioned a few minutes ago, they're, they're treating that the symptom of a much bigger problem. They're, they're trying to affect supply, but really it, it's demand that is the key driver here. And if they just simply said, hey, no more immigration for five years, and people are going, oh, can't believe you said that. You know, you're not allowed to say that. You're canceled. You're finished, loony hour. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's a dramatic statement, but it's just simply you're dealing with supply. But over to, you know, Steve, the comment you made, you know, there in Vancouver, you know, hey, People have second and third homes, right? It's just the way the world works. And all of a sudden, foreign investors start hearing that, wow, you if you buy a secondary home or property in Vancouver or Toronto or Whistler or, you know, um, I don't know, any place north of Montreal, Rich, wherever, wherever people go there. Trombois and Laurentians. I want to be in a Laurentian elite. That's all I've ever aspired to be. <laughs> there you go. You go. Charlevoix, maybe, other than that area, which is quite beautiful. But guys, one of the best road trips in the world. You, you drive along the uh, the northern side of the St. Lawrence in, in Quebec in, in the fall. It's amazing. Great food. Yeah, it's quite nice. But however, the point is that you're, you're making a statement. Say, hey, Canada is now closed to foreign investment. If you want to come in, we're going to make it pretty friggin' hard for you. Uh, but again, like we're, we're into this, like there's lots of conversations now. And, you know, we've talked about it quite a bit about, you know, per capita data for Canada. And it's, it's this employment growth number. And, you know, so they say, well, it's driven by the universities we're driven by, you know, we need more skilled people and, and stuff like that. You know, we flooded, we, we've had 10 years with no price discovery in the bond market a decade with zero, near zero rates, and we're bored, exactly. And then when the pandemic hit, they gave everybody money. Not everybody. I know a lot of people do struggle, of course, but on an aggregate level, everyone money, no one lost. And now all of a sudden, they're just shocked that there's this imbalance in the housing market. And they think, oh, we just need to build more supply. No, it's like, Rich, if you drew one of your, your great charts, you know, it goes up and down, trending, you know, bottom left, top right. And you draw your, your trend line through there. You know the kind of chart I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm nodding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This might be a pickup line. You never know, right? You go through <laughs> this. But the current data point, it's way above the trend line. And this will not be fixed 
politically. Uh, you know, we have a big political year coming up next year around the world. Um, you know, I know Canada is scheduled for 25. Maybe it happens before then if the guys in the orange shirts might fess up here. But, um, you know, we, we got some struggles coming up. And again, these numbers, like what you just listen to them. You know, like, for example, here's one quote I wrote down. This is from the Minister of Finance. We're going to build thousands upon thousands upon thousands of new homes. Like, what the heck does that mean? Like, it's just. <laughs> I can tell you, like, it's theater. Having... I'm not finished. I'm just getting warmed up, Steve. Okay? <laughs> Canada is a global investment destination. No, it ain't. You start doing this, it is not a global, you know. Climate change policy is an economic policy. He's right about that. What the fork does that mean? He's right about that, which we keep going. We'll get to that one some other day, maybe. But he's right about that. And, and not the way he thinks, but carry on. We have fiscal restraint. No. Are you kidding me? That's, that's there's a joke, no, obviously. There's no restraint going on here. Uh, hey, Rich. Restraint is with truthiness. So Was I, that I a rant? To... Did I just do a rant? Was that yeah, like a you, yeah, you're, or... I got a I got to cut you off here, Rich. You're. Um, I actually want to get back to your point, but I was just kind of just to put it into context for people. And I know people will kind of push back on this number, but um, so we're going to run a forty billion dollar deficit this year again. You know, ten over ten years ago, but uh, in two thousand nine, during the depths of the global financial crisis, Canada ran a thirty three billion dollar deficit. So now again, I know the GDP picture has changed, so you have to adjust for that and inflation and whatnot. But like that kind of puts things a little bit into context. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the the problem is, it's not deficits aren't in and of themselves a bad thing. Again, I, this is the pushback I have against you guys. It's A, what are you doing with the money? And B, what stage of the cycle you're in? Mm -hmm. Remember, like, again, this is my view. And, you know, Kane, John Maynard Keynes is one of my heroes. I make no bones about that. And his point was that when your economy is contracting and there's a severe contraction in domestic demand, governments should step in and spend money to alleviate some of that contraction, that pressure. That's not what's going on now. Unemployment right. rates are very, very low. Participation rates are actually quite high in Canada relative to history. So we're in a situation where, by all rights, if you followed Keynes, you'd, you'd say, actually, we should be trying very hard to rest actually restrain spending, try to run up some budget surpluses, build up some reserves, um, and to in, su in, in such a way that when we do have a material downturn, that then the government should come in and alleviate some of that pressure. That's not what's happening, which is why it's so dangerous, which is why it's inflationary. We're And this is why the Bank of Canada... As, as try as they might, they they do between the lines say that it's inflationary, right? You're above the potential GDP and Canada's deficit spending at a time when you have such low unemployment, e.g. full employment, is basically fiscally irresponsible. And and that's that's ultimately what we're dealing with. And so but the problem with Keynesian economic. Okay, theory. here we go. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Here we Save go. Save for the live event, pal. <laughs> well, um, the challenge with it, I mean, he's he's rolling over in his grave because, as you said, Rich, you know, during times of economic downturn, yes, you know, stimulate with deficits and 
lower taxes, which that's, that's never happened. It's over. <laughs> but during the good times, you know, run a surplus, pay off your debt and everything. And, and that part has been forgotten. Right. But but Steve, what, what is the deficit forecast coming up? For this year? Ballpark. 40 billion. 40 okay. billion. Rich, how much in interest is going to be paid? I get Just you, man. Interest only? No, but that's my billion. point. But that's my it's point. Billion. See yeah. what I mean? Like this doesn't work, guys. Like, but it's... that's that's but that's you're you're right. Keynes would be rolling oh. over his game because I... he made it very clear that when you're in good times, you have to restrain your spending, and they don't do that. They don't care. I... This is why, by the way, MMT doesn't work. But anyway, I got one more thing to add to the budget, and then we're shift gears. But um, we we did have, and I got to mention this because we actually had him on as a guest in the show. We had uh, Professor Michael Geist. Uh, oh, yeah. so we, we had him on to discuss um, the internet law, basically, that uh, or legislation that the government had passed, which was effectively that um, they were going to stop showing uh, news uh, on Canadian social media, right? So if you know, if you go on uh, Instagram or Facebook today and you wonder why you can't get, uh, you know, Bloomberg News or CBC News or or, or not CBC, but um any of these, well, I'm assuming, I think it was non-Canadian. If you can't hang a lot of you news. You can definitely get CBC news. <laughs> no, no, it's all it's all that stuff. It's the sharing. Keep yeah, going. it's all that stuff. So anyways, <laughs> they basically blocked it. And, and so what's happened effectively is that uh, obviously these media, these Canadian media companies, which it was the legislation was supposed to help, has actually hurt them uh, from a revenue perspective because uh, nobody basically sees their news articles anymore. Uh, and so now the government is basically bailing out uh, the Canadian news news outlets uh, after an impact of a disastrous Bill C-18. Uh, so they're now going to cover 35% of journalist labor costs, and they've increased their per-employee claim from 55000 to 85000 crazy um so the measure is going to cost an extra 130 million dollars over the next five years um again so the canadian government is increasing uh the the tax credit rate from 25 percent to 35 percent per employee hey rich that's keynesian economics no hey? it's not that's awesome. you that's bastard. what you do man <laughs> Spend, 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 baby. No fucking way. That is not what that is, man. <laughs> oh, Anyways, man. I thought you would enjoy that, but um let's talk about let's talk about American Thanksgiving. I think we're almost done. Oh, we got Canada CPI. I don't know if you want to touch briefly on that. We had some comments from Tiff Macklem, our buddy there as well. Okay. You go so with Canada, you Canada go CPI with? came in at 3.1% year over year. Again, people are going to argue about what's driving it and and you know government stats and what to believe uh ultimately yes you know a large reason for the decline was gasoline prices those are volatile um but the biggest drivers again of cpi i think it's over 50 percent of the increase is 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 mortgage interest costs um and rents rents so. baby rents 8.2 i'm looking at the thing now <laughs> Uh, but no, the, the big driver was, by the way, if you so if you X out, I mean, if you remove all the stuff going down, everything else is going up. That's my old joke For there. Sure. But if you do X out the energy component, um, I think it's like 3.6%. So there's still quite a bit of inflation. But the, um, the thing that I thought was interesting was, um, you know, just doing a little quick little math here. We're still running at 0 0.3 per month. So what's 0 0.3 times 12? It's 3.6. I mean, it's still well above. Uh, that annualized rate is still well above target. So And the, the Bank of Canada's closely watched three-month three month average of core 
core inflation <laughs> is, uh, is, is running at 2.95. So kind of within their one to three target, but yeah. again, you, everyone's sitting here like arguing about like the numbers. I think at the end of the day, um, I think we can all agree that the bank of Canada is effectively done. There were some comments, uh, that came out yesterday from the bank of Canada's Tiff Macklem, uh, who basically said, quote, uh, rates may be quote restrictive enough. Uh, more downwards pressure on inflation is in the pipeline, and he believes that excess demand is gone. Uh, so excess demand, uh, where corporations felt they can continue to pass on uh, price increases, is 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 no longer a threat. So we'll see. I think there was some some pretty dovish comments from Tiff Macklem. Really, his first public comments since the uh, the last rate pause. Um, but anyways, there you go. Here she was gone. gone. Um, this one, one little thing, one little tidbit on that is just that, you know, be careful what you wish for. Cause this is, I mean, in the sense that like we might be cheering the decline again, inf- prices are still rising. They're just rising at a slightly slower rate, a rate that it remains above target PS. But what it also means is that there is aggregate demand is slowing. And we know we feel that in retail sales, we feel that, um, I swear we don't feel that in services or in restaurant spending because I can tell you no, restaurants are crazy. It's I know. Still... So I may, but uh, so we'll see. Um, but well, I don't know. To, to, to round out this whole conversation, it was interesting. There was actually a report that went fairly viral um, about four or five days ago, just before the budget was announced. Actually, there was a report that was put out by the Scotia bank economics team. And again, you know, Rich, you'll probably appreciate this as a, as a guy that used to run a lot of research, um, still does, but these models are not perfect. Um, everybody's, you know, you can't model everything out perfectly, but the Scotiabank's um, view or data suggested to them that interest rates in Canada are effectively 200 basis points higher than they otherwise could be or should be due to excess uh, spending at the federal government level. So I found that rather interesting that, you know, again, rates are 200 basis points higher. So those people that are sort of complaining about, you know, their mortgage rates and coming up for renewal and, 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 you know, really starting to be impacted by it um, is, is ultimately being driven by uh, excess federal government spending. And uh, you know, clearly that wasn't taken into account when setting this, this latest budget. So that kind of thing summarizes, I don't know if you guys have any additional commentary, but we need a football prediction. Football. So those who are watching, uh, I'll, you know, this is Turkey Day for the Americans. And my whole career has been involved with the U.S. market. So I always take Thanksgiving Day off, which for me, of you course. you fire up meant, a turkey too? No, I don't, I don't go that route. Usually get, you don't double down, eh? No, nah, I'm not into it that much. But you get, you know, you get, you know, you, you do celebrate it with some nice food and things. Uh but yeah, you know, so for my day off, of course, means, you know, podcasts and two other meetings and another couple hours of stuff. But it is football day. So Rich has a better story. But very quickly, the 49ers are playing tonight. So that's why I'm rocking my 1985 purchase Joe Montana jersey. But tonight, um, it's going to be a blue. It could be over by halftime, Rich. They could, just, <laughs> they could call the game. Uh, the last couple of weeks have been pretty good, but tonight it's, it's probably going to be San Francisco, you know, 30 plus points, 34 and, and maybe nine for Seattle. So, wow. uh, yeah, it's a big one, but Rich, why don't you share with everyone where you are and what you're doing like in 
five minutes from now. You're just sure. I'll it. make it quick because I know we got to go. I got it because I got to go. <laughs> so I'm here in Dallas, Texas, um, the Lone Star State. Um, and uh, we're here with some buddies, basically lads on tour. Um, so we're five college buddies. Um, no real reason, maybe because they want to get away from their family and their kids. Um, but we're here. Last night we went to go see the Dallas Stars versus the Vegas Golden Knights. Great crowd, I have to say. As a as a Canadian hockey fan, as a diehard Montreal Canadian, Dallas fan, has great fans. They had great. They were into it from the word go. Way better than Toronto Maple Leaf fans. Way better. I'm sorry to say. And then today we're gonna go see um, the Dallas Cowboys play the Washington Commanders. Um, or the Washington Commies, as I, I prefer the name. But um, and uh, and so I, I predict the score will be a total blowout. Uh, just because I want to see, uh, you know, I want to see a turkey get bludgeoned. No, I think it'll be uh, twenty nine to uh, eighteen. Let's do an, a weird one. Are we giving this guy predictions now, Keith? Yeah, I have this to. Guy's, Come on, okay. this guy's stealing your your show I'm stealing here. Your shit. Rich, rich, <laughs> little cut little it out. Protein little pro tip for this one that you're going to tell me the, the washington could win this one. Oh, this really could, okay yeah they show up for a division game okay this, yeah yeah but you know but go to the uh i love tailgating you know you get to my friends are yelling at me <laughs> yeah shoot some beer what do they call it you punch a hole in the bottom shotgun the shotgun beer shotgun a beer yeah, Keith, you you, you, boomer's good at that yeah okay fire those yeah, up for sure okay. all right guys i gotta go Go, okay. go, go, Cowboys. It's good, it's good I'll place see to wrap you guys up. in Toronto next week. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Toronto next week. Toronto, November 30th. See you there. Tickets. Okay. Take it easy. <laughs> what okay. is that background? All right. <laughs> Did you guys see, see you that? next week? <laughs> <laughs>